the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go. Mental health is my wealth. The stress upon the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seeking ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Big Silence Podcast. It's your girl, Karina Dawn and your host, and I'm excited that you are back here today. I am currently sitting in a hotel room in Los Angeles. Um, I'm filming new workouts for the Tone It Up app, Um, and yes, I should be getting ready right now, but I'm having some coffee, chilling here with a Pomeranian by my side, and then I'm going to head over to set. Uh, New workouts coming in your app this fall for the fall challenge, so make sure you download your Tone It Up app. Uh, So I had a great conversation last week with Dr. Caroline Leaf. She's a neuroscientist and bestselling author of How to Help Your Child. So it's all about, it's a great discussion about today's children and how they're facing a mental health crisis. And I loved this conversation because for parents out there or partners even, There are so many great techniques and takeaways that we talk about. Um, So I really think this is a beautiful episode because you can learn so much and then you can take this into all of these tips into your your personal homes. So enjoy this. As always, share it. I'm sure you have many friends that, you know, post-COVID, you know, need some help with, you know, parenting and how to deal with mental health crisis of our future generations. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple so you get notified for every episode so you don't miss them. And also leave a review because each month we choose someone with a top review and we send you some big silence and tone it up swag. All right. Enjoy the app and I'll see you later. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Caroline Leaf. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Of course. I'm really excited for this conversation because you have your book coming out, How to Help Your Child Work Through, Clean Up Their Mental Mess. And I've had so many conversations, not only on the podcast, but also with my friends who have kids um, about what everything we've been through 
through the past years. Like, what do I do? And I was actually talking to my friend Jeremy this morning, and he has a 10-year-old girl. And we were talking about the difference of like how we grew up and what we did and the freedoms we had. And we would ride our bikes and not talk to our parents for hours. And there was no worries and nothing. And we were just like out there exploring um, and the difference of today's society. So building resilience, where shall we start here? There's a lot of questions. And by the way, I put a question box in on my Instagram yesterday morning, and I've never had so many responses. Wow, that's amazing. And I'm so glad that your listeners have asked so many questions. It just shows the, you know, the, the concern that people have and parents and caregivers and teachers on just what's going on with mental health with kids and how important it is to to deal with this stuff. And and also you know, the fact that you talk about being able to have that free and structured play you know, we need three to five hours of that a day for our, our healthy mind, brain, body networks. But kids these days are getting maybe a few minutes unstructured play. So things have changed, you know, COVID, the pandemic, um, social media. But, you know, I think the biggest point and probably the reason why I released this book now is the fact that changes like this, we're facing unique changes. But every generation has faced unique changes. So it's not like, you know, there was radio, there was TV, there was wars, there were pen. It's not that change is new. And every change is different. I think there's another underlying factor here, which is what I've addressed in this book and what I've seen in the 38 years I've been in the field. And that is mind management. I think we have um, removed that, not I think, and well, I think but from a clinical and research perspective, if we don't help our kids and ourselves as adults understand our mind and what it is and how it works and give tools for mind management, we will end up with a crisis. We, we can't just, you know, put people's experiences down to just a list of symptoms. We have to look at the whole person in their whole environment. And that's what worries me more. We need it. And, and in teaching our kids mind management, we teach them how to change, deal with the changes that are coming because more changes are coming, more radical changes. You know, it, it's we, how do we manage social media? How do we manage AI? Those are the questions I believe we should be asking as opposed to just dealing with the effects. Yeah. And going back to there's always change that you said, like even my grandparents immigrated here from the Ukraine in 1950. Like that was heavy. Yeah. And then there's that generational trauma. There's that everything. Like there's always going to be something. So now we're actually talking about it because when I grew up in the 90s and my mom was diagnosed with schizophrenia and depression, I was like, what? But at least we're talking about it now. And so now the great thing is about what you're doing and how to help the, the children, because little Karina would have loved to have parents or my own knowledge of how to help my mental mess at the time. So at least now we're opening up these conversations. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's such a thrill because I've been watching this trajectory over the course of my career of it's so, it's such a contradiction because in the 80s and early 90s, when I was studying and started working, doing my research, there was a clear distinction between the mind and the brain and, and the recognition of the mind-brain-body network, a clear distinction that a person, the way they respond to life is as a result of adverse circumstances and you need a whole team support, a very holistic support. There was all of that going on. But at the same time, there was hush-hush around the extreme cases and extreme situations. So it was almost like this paradox of the right approach. But when it came to people in really in, in extreme states, it was kind of hush-hush. At least now we talk about all of it. 
But at the same time, we've had another problem that links to the mind management, and that's the reductionistic approach where everything's been reduced down to, oh, well, you said it's your, your brain. And, you know, it's your brain is being blamed for everything. And, and that's also not right because we are such complex being beings within such complex environments. You know, you can't take the person out the environment. The environment's impacting us and there's generational stuff and all that stuff. You talk about Ukraine. I've been there, by the way, a couple of times. Yes, I have, just before, just sort of between the wars, literally. Um, and, I mean, you think of that now, that's been triggered for people that, you know, you're like yourself, I mean, what's going on there? So, in other words, these things, there's just always something. So, I think that the openness is vital, but how we talk about it and how we talk to our children about this is so is so important. And you also pointed out, if when you were younger, to have had, I grew up in the generation as well, where you just didn't talk about your feelings. You didn't talk about what you're going through. You, it was, you know, you'll deal with that. You'll get through this. It's okay. You know, you know, pull, just be strong. You'll, it's not so bad. And I mean, you suppress stuff. And we know the evidence from the ACEs, early childhood trauma affecting adulthood, any trauma at any stage. You know, all these we, we know now is established fact that um, unmanaged chronic, chronic toxic stress is going to result in mental and physical health problems. You know, and that's the that's my field, been my field of research for all these years, showing that this is a reality, but not so much that this is the reality. What can we do about it? That's very key. Let's talk about this thing as we're doing. Let's talk about it properly. Let's look at it from multiple angles and so on. How do you discuss with your children mental health? The first simple step. First simple step is to tell yourself and your children, it's okay to be a mess. That's really key. It's one of the, my key phrases I say it's to adults and children alike because humans are messy. Life is messy. We are a mess. There's no normal brain. A study came out of Yale in 2018, I think it was 2018, late 2018, saying there is no normal brain because every brain is unique. The fact that we are so unique, the fact that it's okay to be messy, the fact that life is messy, I think that's a message we need to get through because in our advances in brain science, and as I said, I've been in this field for a long time now, we've become very neuro-reductionistic, focused around the brain, and that has taken away, almost taken away the permission that we need to give ourselves to be messy. And that the, the the openness that I was trying to, you know, you, you fight, you, you talk about the big silence as your podcast, that this openness to talk about it is is trying to deal with that. But so the first thing is to help a person to accept it's okay to be a mess. We mustn't pathologize childhood and medicalize misery. And the, the best way to do that for your child is for you to manage your own mess and to acknowledge that like maybe you come home from a bad day or maybe you things are going on that just make you feel very unsettled and that changes your expression on your face. Kids read body language better than an adult. They they are very, very insightful, way more than what we've given them credit for. I talk about that in my book as well and give some research studies. They also love authenticity. So if you as a parent or caregiver or uncle or aunt, whatever, can basically show a child that, hey, I'm feeling really sad today. I, I just woke up feeling like uneasy and something's worrying me and I'm trying to put my finger on it. And you kind of process through and there's a way you can actually do that. That's very, very what we call psychoneurobiological. In other words, it actually changes the drivers that drive our functioning. So as you go through a specific pathway of discussing this opening with your child, you are doing that very first major step, which is it's okay to be a mess. I'm a mess. This is how I'm managing it. And that sends a message to them that, oh, okay, well, big people also mess, are battling. But this is how they're dealing with it. Yeah. And I love that message because I feel for many, many years, especially through social media and some of uh, some people I know, they're like, oh, I don't want to 
be upset in front of my child. I don't want to talk about it. I want it to be perfect. I want this and that. I'm like, well, but life is messy and that's okay. I say that all the time. My husband and I will get an argument. He's like, we shouldn't be fighting. I'm like, no, we're not the same person. It's okay. It's okay to be Exactly. It's what you do with the argument. That's the key. That's the management. That's the mind management. So it's, it's our uniqueness will create clashes. But what do you do about it? Like in our arguments, I, I want to say, I call them disagreements. I'm like, we are not the same human. We do not have to agree. And that's okay. I love it. Exactly. And it's, it's that acceptance of difference that is so vital for us moving forward. But I think what's happened is that in the desire to help, we can sometimes get unbalanced. And I think the imbalances come in and that will say, okay, it's, it's bad to argue what's wrong. There's something wrong with us. Meanwhile, you know, they work it through, work out what there could be a pattern that's emerging or whatever. But if someone has an emotion like depression or sadness or something, it's seen immediately as a symptom of an illness instead of as a signal that's giving you information. So we don't want to run from that. The research is very clear and my, you know, from many, many researchers and my own clinical experience. We want to embrace whatever, however we're showing up in order to process, to find the source so that we can actually deconstruct and reconstruct. Because we can't change what's happened to us, but we can change what it looks like inside of us and how that plays into the future. And that's something you can teach children as young as two. This is what's so crazy about this. You can really come in from this angle and we need to get our parents feeling not so guilty they do something wrong that they feel you know this messiness is okay let's start working through it yeah I think that is uh, there's a lot of parent guilt of all of that so coming out of that and being like this is okay I, I have a question here so I was talking to a friend today and they recently had a nine-year-old child this kind of goes into what you were just talking about diagnosed with bipolar parents are going through a divorce. Um, the mom is upset that their child was diagnosed this early. Um, but what is your opinion on the diagnosis of kids so young to depression, anxiety, bipolar at nine years old and going to a doctor and they're like, well, they have these swings because they have bipolar? So it's an excellent question. Thank you for asking that. And I think it really goes to a lot of what people are experiencing and my own experience of you know working with people and so on. I have a whole chapter on this kind of thing in the in, in the book. So the the quick this cliff notes version is that if you get that diagnosis, is that going to help you? Initially it may, because it gives you some kind of name to the manifestation of behaviors or how a person is showing up. But then it's almost like a gift that's empty. So once you've got that diagnosis, then what? And you know, that's where the where that's where the wheels fall off the bus because there's so much more. Now, you already gave a bit of context. There's a divorce going on. We don't know exactly what the, the situation is at home, but children will very often blame themselves for what's going on in their parents' lives unless it's explained to them. And as you say, so many parents have been have grown up, even, even young parents have grown up with you don't share too much with children and all that kind of thing. Meanwhile, obviously, there's boundaries. You're not going to tell intimate details, but to help a child understand we don't get on anymore. We're getting divorced because of these reasons. They need that. And otherwise, they don't know how to process it. So every experience that a person has, including this child that we're talking about now, that experience is being processed by the mind 
into the brain and the body and the mind. It's in the whole network. And that becomes physical tree-like structures made of proteins in the brain. It becomes changes in every cell of our body. It's embodied. It becomes changes in the networks of our, of our actual mind, which is different from the brain. And that's what help, that's what shows up in our life, how we function. So something as huge as a divorce in the home is going to create a lot of confusion in a nine-year-old. And if it's not being spoken about, that child's not processing. So this experience is coming in. And if you imagine a big, ugly tree, this where the roots of the actual divorce process and what's all the stuff around there that we don't even know the details of, that child is seeing that daily. Whatever you think about the most is growing. So this thing's growing. It's also now a reaction in the brain and body's immune system because now this toxic tree is not something that the brain and body can handle very well. So there's going to be a lot of bio biological responses to that. And all of that um, energy has got to go somewhere. Energy is not lost. Energy is always transferred. So it will come out in the child's behaviors and mood swings it's funny, I've got, actually got my book open right on a page where I talk about, and there's one of the things is one of the signals is behaviors is mood swings with things. And so mood swings, extreme mood swings is a child trying to process what is going on. Now, if you don't help a child to process, those mood swings can become very big mood swings and can become very disruptive. And that's why it's so critical that we actually help the child to process so I don't like that diagnosis because I don't see it helping the child. And in the United States, and it's kind of the laughing stock of like the UK and, and various other um, countries, in the United States, they're diagnosing kids as young as two with pediatric bipolar. You know, so I mean, this is ridiculous. Wow. So what we need to do is stand back and take a deep, long look at how can we help that child. So when I practiced something like that, a situation like that, the most important thing is that you would need to hear this, the entire story from the parent and from the child and then work with the whole team. You would work with the whole team. You wouldn't diagnose. You would actually work with the team. You would get the story and then you would address the problems. If there's medical issues, which is very possible because of the extreme nature of what the child's going through, you address those. If there's behavioral issues, if there's learning issues, you address each. But understanding, on a, doing it more as a, as a therapeutic thing as opposed to you know, just like slapping on a label and probably this child's been given a medication. The thing there, though, is the identity issue. And there's, there's another whole aspect there. I've also got a whole chapter on that. You think of a child who's trying to process a parent's divorce and they're probably thinking, what have I done to cause this? And they're not being allowed to process that. And now they're being taken to a doctor because, and they know the mom's worried. They know the dad's worried. They're sensing that, but nothing's been said or maybe not enough has been said. Maybe they are picking all of that up. Now they go to the doctor and the doctor now is giving another label. That's made the mom, you said the mom, a key thing, the mom's very upset about this, but maybe still not talking to the child. So now the child's thinking, they're divorcing because of me. There's something wrong with me. It's upsetting my mom even more. I'm bad. I don't know what to do with this energy. So my mood is going to swing. They're not saying that out loud, but that's what's happening in an, un in an unconscious mind. So I would treat that situation very differently to a label. I think the label is very limiting. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense to me. And as I was having this conversation this morning, I was just like a nine. I just remember me being a child and having my mom being diagnosed, missing a missing person's diagnosed with schizophrenia and this. And then I'm my mind is everywhere. I turn to my own situational depression, my rebellion, my this. And like, and thank God, like, I, you know, this mental disease has skipped a generation. So now I have the ability to share the story and, you know, help others. Um, but back then, I'm sure I could have been diagnosed with something, you know, as a, 
Absolutely. If you'd gone, I mean, it's I'm sure you've heard and read about how you anyone you could just anyone can get. I have a room full of people in front of me, and everyone can get a label because, and that's the whole thing is that they shouldn't be labeled. We should take all that information as descriptions of how people are showing up and 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 group it. And that's what I've done with 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 my work and what I've tried to make very easy for parents is how you show up. Take that as your aspect, like you were saying when you were a child and your mom was. Diagnosis schizophrenia, what you had to go through with an almost absent, pretty much an absent parent and not understanding this and you didn't know how to process it yourself and all that kind of stuff. If we if we could help a if even it was your dad or someone in the family, even if your mom had the tools to have been able to help you to sit down and say, All right, what's going on with mom? This is what's going on with mom. This is what's it's not you. It, but let's talk about the impact on you because this is impacting you. Mental health challenges in a family member do impact the other family members. It's traumatic. You you went through trauma. And that's very scary. And how do you process that? And so if, if we can if you can teach a child to understand rather how they show up, teach an adult to understand how they show up and use all those big scary words rather as descriptions versus labels because labels are so finite they're so defines you but it shouldn't yeah they're like cancer diabetes they're very very scary words and but if you break them down because if you give someone an it word like diabetes or cancer or something like that you do need to have underlying neurobiological reasons for that you do need to have tests to test for that you need to have a very specific set of guidelines so rather use it which we don't have for those those things they, they, they there's there's all kinds of science behind that and can go into that if you wanted to but essentially what would be much better than even debating that is to say okay that child is showing up in this way let's describe it let's describe what those emotions are let's describe what the behaviors are what are they saying? What are they doing? How are they saying it? How are they doing it? Let's talk about what this is, how this is showing up in their body. Maybe there's migraines. Maybe there's a persistent pattern of illness starting to happen. Let's talk about their perspective. How is this little nine-year-old looking at life? So those are four, I've held four fingers. I've identified four signals. And a signal gives us information. So if we're going to analyze how we show up, we need to look at, read the signals of how we show up. In that moment, how is that child showing up today as they get ready for school in the morning or how they came home from school, how they're showing up at school and start to analyze that information and then work through, you know, sort of a sequence of processes. You can actually get, um, you can get to a point where you can't change the fact that the divorce is happening and the child's been impacted, but you can get to a point of helping the child understand what's going on and how to deal with that. That's really key. Yeah. Can we go back to migraines? Number one, uh, migraines and stress. I have one friend with a kid who gets migraines a lot. And then I have a friend who's uh, in his 40s and getting migraines all of a sudden. So just talking about the neuroscience around migraines and stress. So there's a correlation. They've done a correlation. There's still the causative link is hasn't totally been established. So no medical professional will, will directly say that the migraine is directly into stress, but it's always one of the aspects that's correlated because there could be so many other factors like food and allergies and medications and so on. But it's pretty clear that there's a very strong correlation. And, you know, a migraine is when the blood vessels are basically di- too dilated. So there's so much blood pumping through. That's where you get that heavy, intense sense of nausea and blinding you, know, you can't look at light and that kind of thing. And it feels like this thing is like almost like something's alive in your brain pulsating and it's it's very overwhelming. And um there's there's enough research out there showing that that's it's a very strong correlation. And especially if there's a sudden onput, 
you know, there's a sudden, because then you, the first thing that I would do if I was still practicing, I would just, you know, get the person's narrative and see if we can track down what maybe there was some sort of trigger. And um, if there's a pattern, then that then maybe becomes a pattern. Like you said, the child, someone, the child consistently gets them. I would look at the association between when and where it's happening. So the who, what, when, where, why, how. And I would look at the migraine as a physical symptom, but then I would look at, okay, let's look at the rest of the signals and let's see if we can find a pattern and then find the details of the pattern, the who, what, when, where, why, how, and do that reflective process. And then, then from there, okay, this is what's happening now. What are we going to do? So going through that kind of process, so, so in, in terms of how does that happen, I can explain that as well. I can explain the neurophysiology of why would that, why do we get reactions in our body? The main thing is to understand is that our mind is not the same as the brain. The brain is this incredibly complex physical substrate, but without you being alive, the brain just disintegrates, it does nothing. Same with the body. The body is a bunch of cells and works very complex ways linked with the brain. But it doesn't, if you're dead, it doesn't do anything. Your heart can't pump anymore. Nothing works. So there's something that seems to give life to this physical, and that we can categorize this as mind. So mind's got two aspects. It kind of drives the physicality of us, but it also is how we experience humanity. So how we think, feel, and choose in response to love and fear and and situations that happen in our life like divorce and parents with a mental illness you know mental challenges and so on um so it's how we also the joys of life and the love so it's how we as a human can experience life so it's how we uniquely think that and choose so that's the psychological then there's a whole bunch of physiology which in psych well, i don't have to get into that in the most simple explanation this child whose parents are going through divorce or the child who's having migraines or the um the conversation we're having now all of these are experiences they are their sound waves, there's electromagnetic light waves. In other words, every experience has got a physical aspect. The mind grabs that on a physical level and puts that into the brain as waves of energy. And the brain responds on a neurochemical, electromagnetic, and genetic level. So kind of like waves of the sea. As person's talking, there's waves of information coming in, builds and it collapses, and these whole cycles going on, and that sends a message to the body, and this and proteins are made, and all kinds of amazing stuff. At the end of this conversation, you've got a little thought tree in your brain with proteins and vibrations which is our conversation and so that child who's going parents going through the divorce each time that child each day that child's going adding more and more has got a thought tree that's getting bigger and bigger with each new experience that's happening and that if you think of a tree a tree's got a root system trunk and branches so the roots where it grows from seeds planted in the ground so as the divorce discussion starts or as the rumblings between the relationships start that's the seed and as the child's observing the relationship break down those are all the roots that are forming and then as the interactions happen and whatever as that's happening as the roots of, of an experience what i've just described or as you and i are talking those would be roots but then each person uniquely interprets what you and i are talking about that child's uniquely interpreting the divorce potential divorce as um, through their own unique way of processing, which is the way the mind, their mind is working. No two minds work the same. And the brain is accommodating to the unique mind, uniqueness of brain, uniqueness of mind. Mm. And then the branches are how that particular person is re responding to that information. So the coping strategies, the trauma responses, the self-talk, the all that stuff is how, oh, I'm a bad child. My parents are breaking up because of me. It's my fault. I've done this and I've done that and guilt and what's wrong with me and and whatever, all this. And then that collectively, that tree with the roots and trunk and branch plus its connection to the body, the changes in the cells because we, we put this in every single cell of our body, 
and the mind network, which is all these like fields, all of that collectively booms out and that's you in a situation. So now let's say there's this constant toxic stuff coming in. The energy waves are all we see from the research. I do a lot of research with mind brain body. So we use QEGs and, and various different ways of looking at how the brain's responding to experiences. We also look in the body and see what the responses are. So I'll just take two simple examples. If that toxic experience comes in, in that way, the child, maybe the parents have an argument. So this is an experience. It's waves coming in. Think of the waves of the sea. They have big, like far out to sea, they're big, and then they get smaller, and then they build up to like kind of go flattish. They build up to a wave, get a white crest, crash on the beach, make little ones, and they go back in. Now, that's what we, when we are going through the ups and downs and the normal things of life, and sometimes we cry and we're sad and we're happy, and you know, the normal things of life, kind of on a, if you think of a scale of one to 10, those would be the one, twos, and threes, the ups and downs and all the stuff of life. Okay. Then this child's experiencing that, you'll have then those waves would be flowing like that, like I've just described across the brain. And your brain and body, all your hormones and your HPA axis and your which is your hypothalamic pituitary stress axis, all the things, the immune system, things are, are doing what they should be doing. We've got this what we call Goldilocks principle. We can deal with a little bit of bad, a little bit of good, kind of in between. But now a lot of bad comes, the abuse or the the trauma of the what you went through with your mom, this issue with this divorce, whatever. So now this is not such a nice thing. This is not the this is not tipping on the side of okay. This is not so good. And so now the waves, instead of being a normal wave of energy, are now disrupted. So maybe they're starting to they're bigger than what they should be. There's more intensity. There's more violence as they hit the beach. There's and that so there's that wave pattern changes, which changes how the blood flows. It changes how the how there's um, the, everything, every bit of functionality in the brain, right down to the endocrines, every part of the body, that starts shifting. So then that affects and can show up in different ways in different people. So maybe with a person who's battling with a migraine, that toxic tree, which when I say toxic, when we build a thought, if it's a happy, great, like you falling in love with your husband and having a great wedding, or whatever, that's a happy memory. That would be a beautiful green tree. So you explain it to kids, and I explain it like this in the book. But that ugly tree with no leaves and it looks kind of old and burnt, that would be an unhappy experience, like someone teasing you at school or this experience with your parents. The unhappy tree, your brain doesn't really like that much in your body. So it sends out the immune, it sends out salt, it's the immune system to basically mm -hmm. fight that because that tree, instead of having nice green leaves, it's all bent and so the proteins are almost folded. So your immune system starts fighting that. And that if we, the more we don't deal with something, the more the energy builds and the more vulnerable our body becomes and the more our chance of manifesting with some sort of a illness starts showing up. So it's not immediate, it's cumulative over time. But as we don't process, as we go through these things and they just stick around for years in our head, so we in, we decrease our biological health and our biological age decreases and our vulnerability to disease increases by 35 to 98%. Wow. So that's what I'm trying to prevent with the work I do is to try and help mm. us process so we don't have this backfiring effect. You're still going to cry. You're still going to have bad times. But your resilience is to not get into those that state, to be able to, you know, not stay down there, but to actually maybe get knocked, but then to get back up again. And that's resilience. This is not resilience. Yeah. You know, this is when we stay stuck down there. And the earlier we start, the better. I always say my superpower is resilience. I've had to learn it through the years. You have got resilience. And you know, you're so right, Karina, because humans are resilient. So what we do in our lifespan is we either unmask and grow or we mask and diminish. And if someone can get an insight into 
how they've coped, which is the branches of the tree, and how that didn't work and, and adjust like you've done with your life. You've unmasked and grown your resilience. And so it's naturally going out of you now to help others, which is helping you every time you help someone else. Yeah, exactly. And I can't wait to share this with the two people that I have in mind and send them your book and everyone else. This is brilliant. But okay. So what are, uh, you talk about simple daily exercises that, as we speak about resilience, that children can do to overcome the mental mess and become resilient? So the first thing that we do is ourselves as parents and adults in the child's life is to learn how to manage our own and be very open about it. So I've developed a system called the NeuroCycle. And the NeuroCycle is based on theory and research. And I still do research. I'm a full-on scientist. Plus, I, I don't practice anymore. I, I now basically take all of the stuff and write simple books. I have an app as well so that mental health can become accessible and affordable, which is exactly the goal that you have too. So mine is very much let's empower people to understand their mind and then recognize when they need extra support on top of. But first and foremost, you as a parent, your child as a child, you live with your mind. Your mind, as I explained, drives everything. So you wake up with yourself at three in the morning, panic at the panic attack. You can't phone your therapist. If you're married, you can maybe wake up your husband or wife or partner or whatever. A child may be at school being bullied. What do they do? In other words, we have to empower our children to manage their mind. So the key daily thing that we want to do is to get a child to know how to do mind management, which is essentially self-regulation. So the neurocycle is the tool of mind management. If you want to manage your mind, we need a tool to do it. And why do we need a tool or a system? Is because that mind mind thing is connected to the brain and the body, and it's doing all these things I've described. And to fix up those proteins and those trees and your cells and all these fancy things, it takes time. And it also takes a very specific sequence. So I wanted to understand that. So my research was to try and find out how could I help my patients identify how they're showing up and reverse engineer what they'd grown in their brain because the brain can change. Back in the 80s, they didn't know the brain could change it. They didn't think it could. And I did some of the first work in this area in, in the late 80s on neuroplasticity, the fact that you're mind can actually change your brain. So I've taken all of that and created something simple because I need to say, how can I do this with a two-year-old? How can I do this with someone who's in such a broken mental state from such severe abuse and and dealt with trauma? They're not going to do anything fancy. What can I do that's simple and that is real and that works? So all the science was kind of put into a very simple version, but a very simple system called the neurocycle, initially called something else. As we go over time, we find better words to describe things. And it's basically five steps. It's the five steps that we as humans are doing on an unconscious level 24-7. It's basically how our mind works through the brain and the body. So it's a five-step system. Within each, there's a lot of neurophysiology going on, but you don't even have to know about that. You just have to know to do the five steps in the right order and that's what I explain in the book. And, and I've got an app and I've got books for 12 and up as well. So in adults and whatever. Okay, so do you want me to explain the five steps? Sure. Yeah, I think you should definitely go get the book to get all the details. But yeah, let's let's hear the five steps. Well, where do you want to go? I can yep. in whichever direction you'd let's, like to. Let's hear the five steps. Okay, so the first thing you have to do is prepare your brain. So that's not a step yet. It's a preparing of your brain. And that's very much down the, along the lines of um, you've got a lot of these kinds of resources on your website, meditation and breathing and all that kind of stuff. And that's very popular. And there's, I've got lots of examples for how to do it with kids. I have it in my app. I have an app called the NeuroCycle. Why am I talking about this? Brain preparation 
is extremely important to get our mind-brain network tuned in and activated and calm enough so that you can actually do the work of managing your mental health. So when we talk to a child about managing mental health, which is also one of your earlier questions, and how do you, we shouldn't make it something scary. We should just talk about the mind. And the mind is what makes us work. And sometimes we have bad experiences and that messes up how our mind's working and makes it messy. And this is how we can fix the mess. That's really what the neurocycle, the simplest way that you explain this to the child is life is messy, we build these messy trees, we're cleaning up the trees. That's kind of a simple way of explaining it. And with the roots, I've even got pictures of, there's cartoons throughout the book, I'm sure you saw, of this character called Brainy that I've created. We even have a toy, a little toy, fluffy toy called Brainy. It's the little um, neuro superhero who walks your mental health journey with you and he helps you manage your mind and it's brainy. So it's giving the child the message that, hey, I control my brain. My brain doesn't control me. I can actually change this brain and therefore my life kind of thing. Brainy so is yours? Th- you sell that? Or- yes, yes I've, sold it. I've sold this. Yeah, so it's, it's basically a character I created 25 years ago. And we, um, I had an artist, a Disney artist, actually draw this, and then we re-resurrected it for this book. So it's throughout this book. It's so blurry, sorry. It's throughout this book. I can take the blue off. I need to take the blue off. Um, so I teach the children, how parents teach their children this neurocycle by using Brainy. So you'll see that character as a cartoon throughout the entire book. And every concept, like the trees, you'll see Brainy with a tree and the different happy trees and sad trees and the five steps of the neurocycle, there's Brainy doing each of those steps. So And there's scenarios and things like that. So we've even got a coloring book um, with the different scenarios that people can get. So there's a whole kit. They can, they can get the Brainy and the book from our website, drleaf.com, and then the books available wherever books are sold. Um, so essentially the idea is that a child and an adult, we relate to cartoons, we relate to physical things, etc. So when you're teaching something like this to a child, that's why I created this character. And, and, and like a two-year-old, for example, a two-year-old or a three-year-old, let's say they've been bullied at daycare and you pick them up from daycare and they will, they're throwing a tantrum and they're sad and they won't eat and they're crying and they maybe, you know, throw their toys. They don't know how to, that's energy coming out. They don't know how to say it. But if you've created an environment where you've got Brainy and the book and you've got a little toy box and you've got an area in your, maybe your sitting room that's a cute little beanbag or a cute little chair in this toy box and that's your mind area. In other words, you've, you have you you create a designated space in your area, like you cook in a kitchen, you do mind work in this area. You don't always have to just do it there, but to teach this to a child and to train ourselves to keep mind as, as your first priority because the neurocycle is helping you manage your mind. It's great with children to have a designated space. And so that two-year-old comes home and you've got this idea going, they go sit down in that space and maybe they throw themselves down and they pick up Brainy and they might even make Brainy fight with things, but they're telling you a message because you've created a space that it's okay to be messy. This is not who you are. I understand that you're going through something. There's a because of, you know, in simple words, and I give you developmental tables and how to say the words and all these things in the book, but the child, it's a point of contact. Maybe all the child has to do is pick up Brainy or pick up Brainy with another toy or something. And you know that that's, okay, mom, I need help. I need to talk. It's taken away that scary, I don't know what to do with how I'm feeling and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of all part of your preparation is prepare an area. Um, prepare. You can even paint a wall with chalkboard paint and have a thing of chalk or you can have crayons and art supplies so that they can actually go and explain how they feel. So we put this major importance on our managing of our mind. And let's say that you have a bad day, and I'll come to the five steps in a moment. 
as a parent and you walk in the door and you've had a really stressful day and this has happened, that's happened, you're worried about your mom or your dad or whatever, you don't have to just try and suppress it. Remember authenticity and modeling for kids and body language, all that stuff, insight. You go sit in the wheelchair and, and you start going through the process. So you're demonstrating for the child, okay, I'm feeling sad because of this and this. And maybe you even walk in the door and you yell at your kids or you say, you are always driving me crazy and you you immediately feel parent guilt. But you can go and sit there and say, I'm so sorry. I never meant to say that behavior. I'm so frustrated emotions. I am a tummy so sore from feeling like this bodily sensation. And today life just sucks perspective. You've modeled for the kids and then you'd walk through the next step. So that step that I've just described now is the first of the five steps where I have gathered awareness of four signals, my emotions, my behaviors, my bodily sensations, and my perspectives. And as I've sat in the beanbag or whatever, and I've and I've done those four. Now, maybe just before I did that, I'm so worked up when I walk in the door that maybe just to calm down my neurophysiology, I do a bit of brain preparation. And that could be something as simple as breathing in for three counts and out for seven. It's called a 10-second pause. It's absolutely outstanding to calm down the neurophysiology, especially if you is in and you force it out seven counts and you do it six to six to nine times, you push so much oxygen to the front of the brain that you can calm down that big wave, it kind of starts calming down, which means that the chemicals and hormones and all the other stuff in your brain and body that just need to calm down will calm down. So you can go throw yourself on the beanbag and say, ah, and you can start working through the neurocycle. So that's the idea. And you model that. Your kid will come home from school, even your teenager. And they'll throw themselves down in the beanbag. And, you know, this is the safe space. This is where I need to talk. This is where I need to be listened to. And that's what you want to create. Um, I so then, this. I love this. Number one. I'm also in my brain thinking, even as an adult, when our inner child comes out and that little kid gets angry even in a marriage or a relationship, I'm like, okay, I have a beanbag in my house. I have a talking stick. My brainy. <laughs> my- oh, exactly. Exactly. We do that. I tell you, my husband and I have been married for 35 years and I have four kids. They're all adults and they all work with me. And we're all together pretty much all the time. And so it's very easy to get worked up. And all of us, like we know, when we are getting worked up, we build in meetings, we'll do neurocycles because you can do it in under 10 seconds. And you can, for the day-to-day struggles, and then you can do the neurocycle. If there's a big trauma, then you would do it daily for 15 to 45 minutes for cycles of 63 days, which is how long it takes to form a habit, not 21. So and I've a lot of work on that too. I'm doing a publish on that and I'm doing a research study now confirming there's but pretty much that's the length of time. So it's really, it's great. I mean, you like we, we'll have an argument, my husband and I as well. And I know we'll both separate out to our little space. We both found our little beanbag space, our neurocycle space, and we'll resolve it with my kids too. We, it's become, and I did so much family therapy. And this is one of the first things I taught, hey, let's, let's create this, this mental space and let's create this physical space. So it works. Anyway, then you, your second step is, to, sorry, did you oh, want to no, ask go ahead. No, go ahead. So you and it's and this I'm giving the big picture. Obviously, yeah. the details are in, in the book, whatever. The next thing is once you've gathered awareness, it's like flying a plane. If I've prepared, I've done my breathing, and I've done, or I've done a meditation, or I've done a little activity. Like another example of a preparation would be something like, okay, you're very cross, you're very angry, you've got your kids fighting in the car, they're angry. You say, okay, let's think of five things we can see, four things we can smell, three. You know, it's those simple things. There's so many brilliant techniques out there that. Will prepare the brain to tune down and and get into alignment so that you can actually sort out the problem and manage your mental health. So before I go on, 
just to circle back to your very first question, how do you talk to kids about mental health? This is how you do it. So we don't have to say scary words like mental health, mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar. Use those as adjectives in the discussion, if necessary, rather just talk about the other things in terms of those four signals. You'll get much better responses. You'll get more, you'll get your teenager opening up to you. You'll get that, you know, adolescent and so on, and your young child and so on. So once you've prepared and gathered awareness, notice the word gather. I'm not just randomly becoming aware. I'm actually very focused on those four different signals. Once you've become aware of those four signals, you need to do something with them. What research shows is that if you just prepare your brain and you just gather awareness, so you become very mindful in the moment, you know, all the language of today, mainly emotions, and you don't do anything else, you will get worse. It's kind of like flying a plane. The pilot had, and co-pilot had to prepare everything and the engineer and the, the tower and the airport. That's brain preparation. Then they take off. Very specific, following very specific guidelines to take off. It's very focused, to taking off. If they don't know how, that's the equivalent of gathering awareness. But now if that pilot doesn't know how to fly the plane, the plane will crash. The pilot has to fly and then land. So they have to learn to do all of that. That's what we have to do too. What we're teaching a lot of people with just preparing the brain is we're teaching people how to, you know, get ready to fly, but then nothing else. So they don't progress. They just keep getting stuck and using the same preparation over and over, which is helping, but it doesn't have sustainability and actually can make you feel worse. If you just gather, prepare and gather awareness, now what do I do with all these thoughts that have come up and all these emotions? You can't just suppress them. They'll go back even stronger than before and you'll feel worse. You'll crash. If the pilot can't fly the plane, you'll crash. So we have to first, we have to fly. So how do we fly? The next three steps are flying. And that's reflecting, which is the who, what, when, where, why. Why do I have this emotion? Why, why am I feeling this emotion in my body? Key with those four signals and the second step is if I'm feeling sad, where do I feel this in my body, in my tummy or in a migraine? Where, what, how is this affecting my behavior? I'm drawing connections between them. Oh, I'm grumpy and don't want to talk and not eating properly or whatever. And how is this your perspective? Now, how do you teach a child perspective? Well, it's attitude, viewpoint, focus, lens. You do it with a pair. Like I give examples. You do it with sunglasses. Take Get three pairs of sunglasses, one that's all pretty and flowers and barbie-fied, you know, or something, and then another one that's scratched, just get cheap things, and then another one that's all broken and have them in a box. And then you could say, How do you how do you feel today? And they could pick up whichever pair of glasses represents. And kids, once you start that process, kids come up with other ideas for perspective. But you've you've gathered awareness of those. Now you can say why. Second step, why did you put those glasses on? Can you see that when you're this sad, you always seem to get that sore tummy? And there's no judgment, there's total kindness, total acceptance, total in the space, there's nothing that I love you for who you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You just can't hurt your brother. You can't throw toys at someone. You can't, you know, that you control that behavior. We deal with the impact. So let's rather go to the chair and take our energy this way. And if your child is very worked up, this is also the space, this beanbag idea, the safe space, neurocycle corner, mind management corner, whatever you want to call it, is also the space where you could have maybe a little bucket with some old plates and under supervision, you let them throw the plate in the bucket and break it. 
So mm. there's an energy that's pent up that they can, you know, throw. Or you could have little soft bean bags and let them throw it at a wall that there's no. So there's this, because kids and adults, we have pent up energy. And that's part of your brain preparation. That's what you could do. You could, and I give that as one of the examples. You could then, when you, at some other time during the day or whenever, you could then take all those pieces and then rebuild the plate as an art project, which is Kintsugi, the Kintsugi principle of they never, the Japanese never throw anything broken away. They always fix it with gold and nuts. It's the new you with all this beautiful experience, that's resilience that you talked about. So if you think of your own life, you can then take, the child can rebuild. You can say, look at that. Even though you were so broken by this divorce, we can stick those pieces together. There's, you know, the anger towards the parents because they don't understand and, you know, whatever. And you can rebuild and say, yes, that has affected you. This is making you sad and that's okay. But you can still keep going. Look, we can rebuild the bar. So that's some, you know, those are the sorts of things. And I give lots of examples like that that you yeah. can do kind of over time. This is, this is yeah, I mean, even as an adult, I don't have children. But I have been a child and I have that inner child that I always continuously work on. Like, I can't wait to read the entire book. Well, this is what we're finding with, because I have another book. I don't know if you've seen this one, but Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. That's basically for 12 and onwards. Um, Goodness, I need to take this. There we go. Okay. So that, and then my app, the NeuroCycle app, this is basically for adolescents and onwards. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. I'm literally giving you therapy. So it walks you through. So the adults that are listening, this book I have had adults using this book for children. I mean, for themselves as well, because they use the two together because it's so simple. But this was basically initially developed for um, an adult initially, um, teenager and teenagers and then younger children. So it's been adapted. So it's for every level. I use, as I said, I use this all the time. Everything you listed, we'll put in the show notes too, because those are great resources. So I know a lot of people want to grab those. And what we're doing is, thank you, we're adding into the NeuroCycle app. It's a whole community that, that we're building. There's a webinar starting, there's a chat feature starting, all kinds of things. But currently at the moment, it's, there's quite a lot in already. It walks you through the whole NeuroCycle and over time and how to use many NeuroCycles. We'll be putting a parent add-on in there as well, which will be in by September. So and there's all kinds of, so it's a community we're creating and it's, it's, cheap, it's accessible and affordable, which is what your whole project is trying to help people to, get and be empowered to help them manage their mental health. And it doesn't mean that life's going to not throw lemons at you, but it literally is life throws lemons. How do you make lemonade kind of thing? And it's such a stupid saying, but it's such an effective saying. Um, you know, it, it, and it allows you to cry. It allows you to be sad. Very often I find with patients when they've been going through this process, when they've had, and I talk about this in in the, the Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess book, um, I talked about one of the clients in our study who was one of the studies, clinical trials, he was incredibly depressed and was giving up on life, suicidal, had done everything, had just couldn't cope. And with long story short, they had done every therapy, everything that you can imagine, therapies, medications, and so on. And they just had had enough. And though no one had told them how to be empowered and how to manage their mind. They were just told they were broken. And it turns out that when they came into the trial, we do all the brain stuff and all the psychological stuff and the narrative. And then they got the app, the neurocycle app. So I didn't give them therapy. They didn't even meet me. They And this is the power of empowerment. They were simply had the app loaded on their phone and then they went and often did, did the, went through the neurocycle and they discovered that they that through that process, it, they had suppressed years and years of trauma and that was had exploded in their life and exploded in their body. They had all kinds of illnesses and all kinds of stuff, which we picked up as well with the, with the clinical trial. Within nine weeks, this person was back on track or they, basically their biological numbers had stabilized in the process, they actually got, um, at one point, sort of three weeks in, 
they got more depressed. So they came back into the clinic because it was a clinical trial over fixed points. And they said they're even more depressed and more anxious, but it's different. They were depressed and anxious because they had seen why they were depressed and anxious in the beginning. So they were grieving and having a very normal depressed response to see all those years of trauma that I'd suppressed, all the years the inner child had lost. You know, so that was a sadness for the inner child. And and that's normal. That's not a disease. That's not, that's the sort of thing, you know, what I don't want to assume anything because I don't know the story of a mom, but someone who who has gone through something like schizophrenia, that description, it's a broken mind. It's someone who's been through so much extensive stuff that we can't even begin to understand. And to put those pieces together takes a lot of time. But when the mind shatters, the brain and body will shatter and it takes time to pull that all back together again. So if we can be as proactive as we can in preventing stuff staying inside, this young woman that I'm talking about now, she was on that road to completely breaking down if she didn't you know, do herself in. And I've seen thousands now. It's not just a few people. It's thousands over my years of working. And I'm not saying I have a system that is the solution. I'm not saying don't do anything else. I'm saying do everything that you, all the beautiful techniques that are out there, do take what works for you. There's so many options, but just put it in the right framework because then you know you actually are changing your psychoneurobiological network. Why must you change the psychoneurobiological network, your mind brain body connection? Because that's what's driving you. That's what's driving you. So you need to change what it looks like. As I tell the kids, you need to go find that ugly tree, buy the signals, the neurocycle helps you find the tree, it helps you pull it up, and it helps you take plant food and heal the roots so that the ugly part of the tree shrinks and becomes tiny and the big part of the tree grows beautiful and big and healthy. So you can still be sad. You can still have times where you think of those things and you cry because that's it's okay to be sad and depressed about what happened, but it doesn't drive you anymore. The big healthy part of the tree, that's your new driving force. So does that does that kind of make sense? It it does. And when we're talking about my mom, you know, she passed away in 2021. And so I was sorry. I was with her her last three days, and she only spoke about regret, regret, regret. And she didn't have all these tools. She, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but there's that fear of working on the mind and then having that stigma of something's wrong with me. I don't believe a diagnosis is an end all. It's like, okay. Like, it's the start of the description. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to make sure we have time for at least two community questions. Is that cool? Okay. Of course. Absolutely. Okay. So this is from a um, Tone It Up community member who's been here for 13 years. She's actually going to wow. be on the, she's coming to my house and uh, going to be on the podcast ne- uh, this week. Um, and she's a school teacher. Um, she is asking, How can educators better help parents and students with problem-solving skills with peers at school? Wonderful. Okay, so I did a study 18 months ago, about just over 12 months ago, working with teachers to help them with their mental wellness so that they can help their um, their students because the wellness of a child at school and the wellness of a child at home is based on the wellness of the the parents. So that's, and I showed significant changes. So that's under, it's under peer review. So there's science behind what I'm about to say. So the the t- this book is is great for teachers if they've got young, so two through ten, and if they've got um eleven, if they're working with older children, middle school and high school, then I would recommend the cleaning up your mental mess book. So basically, if you learn it for yourself and then demonstrate how you're using it, that's a great way. So if you have it, like no, take 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 a honestly take 
whatever time you can in a day. Mind drives everything. Take the time to follow through the explanations of how I explain thoughts and mind and mental health. Kids absolutely love this. They eat the stuff up. They love the words, brain. They love the stuff. And if you can try and allocate at least an hour a week or 10 minutes each day or something in the in the course of your week, working on these things, they will respond. And then as situations arise, you can then use the neurocycle in the way that I described. You could maybe even have a corner in your in your classroom where you can actually then say, okay, let's sort, let's go sort out this argument here. And you facilitate, you don't do, you facilitate. That's the whole thing here is you're not fixing your child, you can't. You're not fixing your pupil, you can't. You can't fix anyone. You can only fix yourself, but you can facilitate. So that's what the principle is here, how to facilitate the child how to do how to to manage this. So as issues occur. So what we found when I worked a lot in schools and trained teachers and thousands of teachers and schools in Africa and here. And so if you once you have the system going and once you have that area designated, kids will naturally gravitate to that area to resolve problems. Um, I didn't get to the third and fourth and fifth step, but the third step is kind of like a writing step, but it's not journaling. It's actually messy writing in bubbles all over the place. It's called a um, metacog and bubble cog. Once you can just literally draw circles on the ground if you've got young kids, but draw like draw a big circle in the middle and then draw five, four, four circles coming out of it, big, but big enough if you can that someone the kid could stand in it. If you can't, you can just do it on a piece of paper as a demonstration and they can point and you could use blocks or something. But if you you can teach that, then it's, that's the first bubble would be the first signal. Let's talk about our emotions. Let's talk about, and you could have pictures in boxes that you've cut out that you've, and you've got the four boxes of the different signals and the kids can pick them up and they can put them in that circle. So these, all those are the sorts of things you can do to make it very practical. Once they're in the circle, you then, the words or the pictures or whatever, you then go through the rest of the steps, which is the, the right stage is creating this you know, bubble thing or writing down in this kind of messy way, which stimulates the two sides of the brain to work together and activates deep insight. And then you would go through the recheck and reflect, which is closes the cycle, it flies and lands the plane, which is basically, this is what's happened. What are we going to do about it? It's very simple overview. The details are, as I said in the book, and that reaches the action. What are we going to do now to move forward? So it's just, I mean, that's really a Cliff Notes version, but you can apply this in the classroom but I would start once again with you. The first time you demonstrate it, use yourself. Say, I had this happen to me. Obviously, age appropriate and you share what's relevant and what's you know, comfortable sharing. Demonstrate that to them and say, would you like to try this next time you feel sad? I tell you, it's 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 a game changer in the classroom. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. That's a really good tip. So, um, all right. And then our last question is, this is kind of a heavy one. But my daughter lost her father to an accident. How do I help her when I'm trying to help myself? Mm, that's really sad. I'm so sorry that that's happened. So there's so much grief and trauma. And I would once again say, you know, grief, I've done a whole podcast on this. And I've got a whole like, um, net, uh, map in my blog. So podcast match our blog. So if you go and search cleaning up your mental mess, there's actually a podcast and a blog showing how to use a neurocycle to deal with grief. And it's it's stages. So the big thing with grief is that it's not that time heals. Time doesn't heal. That's such a terrible saying, and it's invalidating. That's what happens is that space grows around you. So it's still the same. If you think of a jar, and I've got this demonstration on my on my um, Instagram page. If you take a stone and you put a stone into three jars, and you can do this with your child and yourself. So this is backtrack. This is the first thing I would do. 
is get three jars, get a little stone, and put the jar in the in the three glass, the three or three glasses, a tiny one like a shot glass, and then a normal drinking glass, and then maybe a little mason jar, something like that. So three different sizes. Put the stone, the stone should be big enough that it fits tightly into the mason jar, into the shot glass. And then you what you do is you put that in there and say, this is the pain of losing dad to an accident. It's in here, it's tight, it's making us feel terrible and then you talk together like you start i feel like this it feels like this in my body you go through those signals and you say this is this is normal this is terrible and you cry and you you could even then at that while you're holding that you could even then go and draw maybe on the board if it's got a white paint thing or paper you can then start putting all the all your whatever's coming out putting it down how you feel in that moment and then um you can invite them her the child to join in with you at each stage you can either do the whole go through all five steps on your own or you could invite her to, I feel like this, do you want to say how you feel? So you do it as a collaborative, whatever way works best in that moment. Um, and then you say, okay, this is how we feel now. But maybe in a few weeks' time, maybe it's going to be a few days' time, maybe it's going to be a few months' time, I don't know. But eventually that stone, same pain, but look, it's in the bigger glass. There's a bit more space. I can cope a little better. And then over time I put in the big one. Eventually I'll get to the point where I've got enough space that I will still feel sad, but I'll be able to keep going on. Something like that. That's um, and then so that things on my Instagram at that actual demonstration. And as I said, there's a podcast, there's a neurocycle worked out for them. And then I actually have grief in the in the in the new book. I have um stuff on grief in there as well. That's amazing. Yeah. So we, everywhere you can follow Dr. Caroline Leaf, we will put in the show notes. Definitely get how to help your child clean up their mental mess. Um. I, there's so many takeaways here. I can't imagine how much information is out there through your books, your app, everything. Again, when we were talking in the beginning, I'm like, my dad, who just left, read one of your books. So <laughs> big fan here. <laughs> so lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming and chatting with us. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence. Breathe in, breathe out.